Welcome to First Importance, featuring the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist West Memphis. We're so happy you've chosen to listen, and we pray that you'll be blessed by this message. If you have your Bibles, would you please join me in Ephesians chapter 4 today as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians. Today we are turning a corner. We are moving from the theological portion of the book where we are given a lot of rich information. That is a good word to describe that as we have looked through the first three chapters. Three times we have seen the word riches or rich when examining the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that God has poured out upon his people. The first three chapters have been about information and theology, but now as we come into chapter 4, we turn a corner, we round the curve, and we begin to look at the practical. In light of the gospel, now we must ask the question, what now? Chapters 1 through 3 were succinct, yet sweeping, plain, yet mysterious, And now we come to uh, the turn, which begs the question, in light of this great gospel, what now? I have to be honest with you in studying this passage for this week. It has become one of the most difficult passages for me to preach. Each week, as I prepare, I discover that There are areas in which I'm not following the Lord as nearly as I should. And so in repenting and in praying and studying, my prayer is to come to you and just pour out into you and ask the Lord to pour out what he has already taught me this week and the ways the Lord has convicted me this week. And so if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4, hear now the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray now that you would preach the power of your gospel through this weak preacher. It's in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. The question in chapter 4 and following in the book of Ephesians is, what now? What do we do with all the riches of the gospel that we had just studied? What do we do with all this information? And Paul chooses at this point in the book of Ephesians uh, as, he, as he moves from the information into the practical, he chooses at this time to once again to reveal something about himself that perhaps the reader has forgotten. Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. He is reminding us today that he is in a jail cell provided by Rome with 
chains and with locks that are provided by Rome. And though he says this jail cell and these chains belong to Rome, the key and the lock really belong to Jesus. He had sold his life out years before. He had given his life wholeheartedly to Jesus. And so these chains were no burden for him because he had already given his life to the Lord. And however the Lord wanted to use his life, he was willing to give it for. He is in the midst of persecution. There are all types of levels of persecution. I found that it is often those uh, who are not being persecuted uh, who want to dabble and talk about what persecution actually is. The persecution can come from the way that people treat you or the way that people uh, uh, speak about you. And then, then it can obviously come all the way to the, to the pinnacle here of being imprisoned and then ultimately in martyrdom and death. And here is Paul in prison and he's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus and he's writing this letter to us He's reminding us he's in prison, and then he says this, I urge you. This word urge in the Greek language is unique because it not only means to urge or to beg or to plea, but what he is saying in an essence is to come meet me where I'm at, to join me. I'm begging you, church, he says, First Baptist Church of West Memphis, all those who are listening online, I'm begging you to join me in this jail cell, to join me in these chains. I'm begging. I'm on my knees. I'm pleading with you for, to join me here. And then he says, and to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Um, to walk in a manner that is worthy. That's his plea for us today. That's the that's the plea of the Holy Spirit to the church here at First Baptist West Memphis today, to the churches all across the United States and all across the world. The plea is, in light of the goodness of the gospel, the richness of the gospel, walk in a manner that is worthy of that high calling to which we have been called. Paul begs us, and that is the title of our sermon today. A plea to walk worthy. And as I preach today, I want you to know that this is as much a sermon toward me, that we would be a church that would walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which God has given us. If you're taking notes, there are five prayer requests that Paul gives here today. There are five ways in which we are to walk worthy. And he says, if we're going to walk worthy, the, the first thing he mentions is humility. Look with me in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, verse 2, with all humility. Humility is that great trait that is admired by so many and others, but is practiced by so few in themselves. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says that people don't mind being around humble people because they're not a threat to them. But the Scripture teaches us here today that if we are to walk in a manner that is worthy, if I'm to beg you, if the Lord is to beg us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, the very starting line is here 
in the dirt. It's here understanding that we are to be humble. Humility is the great trait on which all true greatness is built. And you know, honestly, I'm tempted at this point in the message to break out a joke about humility and, and pride or perhaps to sing an, an old song that, that makes light of the, of the moment saying how difficult it is to be humble. But in all sincerity, when I look at the plea that is being made here for us, I find it hard to laugh or to make it light at all. Because we as God's people ought to want to walk in a way that is worthy of the sacrifice that he made for us. The reality is there's nothing funny about the people who claim to be followers of that servant king from Bethlehem, that Jesus, who, by the way, none of us get to choose our beginnings. None of us get to choose where we're born. But Jesus did, and we know what he chose. He didn't choose the palace. He didn't choose the best place or even the, even the most sophisticated time in all of creation. But rather, he said, I want to be placed in that, little, in that little cattle trough right there in that manger. I want to be placed there. I want it to say something about me, that I, am a, uh, that I am a savior of humility and of humbleness. We should want our lives to reflect to God that at least in part we understand, at least a fraction, at least a little bit. We should want our lives to reflect to him that we understand the great sacrifice that he made. And this is our starting line. Humility. If you want to walk in a manner worthy, and I urge you to, to join me, if we want to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that God has given us, you have to begin in the dirt. You have to be humble. Now, the biblical concept of humility is not one that is constantly critical of oneself, the biblical concept of humility is not self-deprecating. It's not constantly pulling yourself down. Rather, humility from the biblical standpoint is understanding a right view of yourself to knowing who you really are, to not being overinflated. Humility is having a proper view of yourself, and believers ought to have that. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, Beginning in verse 1, we are reminded of this great truth. But you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That was our place in the world. Everyone is born spiritually dead. Now, for those of us who are believers and we understand the gospel, we ought to have a right view of ourselves. It's hard to be overinflated or prideful when you remember that you were dead. Does a, does a dead man who's been resuscitated, does he talk about his superior immune system or his superior intellect? Or does he rather look to those who brought him back to life and thank God that they had brought him back to life? That's what happens. We had nothing to do. We had nothing to bring to the table. We had no goodness to offer the Lord. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 3 tells us that we were children of wrath. That means we were destined for hell, a Christless eternity in a fiery real place called hell. That's where we were going. But verse 4 hit us out of, the, out of the blue. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 4, but God being rich in love with the love that he had for us, made us alive together with him even while we were dead in our own sins. 
Now, we as believers, it should be hard to be proud when you understand that very key truth. You were dead. There was nothing you could do about it. You did not get yourself out of the grave. There's nothing that you provided spiritually to please God, but God brought you from death to life. As a matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 13 and following tells us that we were far off, but God has brought us near. We did not have the power to come near to God, but he brought us near and made us together one. See, we as believers ought to be of all people the most humble. But why is it that so often people who call themselves Christians are often the most proud and arrogant people? I preach it to myself. We ought to be people who understand, who preach to ourselves the gospel each and every day. And we ought to be the type of people who remember where we came from and remember who we are to have a proper view of ourselves. Jesus commands us to be humble. Mark chapter 9 and verse 35, Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last. He must be servant of all. That's the way God's people ought to look. We ought to be servants. We ought to not look for the limelight. Jesus gave us the command, and then he set the example. Philippians chapter 2, in verses 5 through 8, Paul commanded us, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Hey, listen, if it wasn't beneath Jesus, it's not beneath you. If you want to walk in a way, and I urge you, I plead with you, if you want to walk in a way, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, you got to be humble. So this week, don't search for the pat on the back. Don't search for the limelight. Serve and be satisfied serving in the quiet. Be satisfied with God being the only one who knows the right thing that you did. Be satisfied being a servant. Don't be asked, don't wait to be asked to help. Render your service when you can. Consider Jesus first, others second, and yourselves last. The scripture commands us here, if we're to live a life that's worthy, he says, what? Be humble. But then Paul moves on. He says, not only are you to be humble, but if you're going to walk in a manner that's worthy of this great gospel, you must be gentle. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness. If you want to walk in a manner that is worthy of the high calling to which we've been called, you must be gentle. It's the way that we as believers are spiritually programmed to be. As a matter of fact, when speaking of the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul will say that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and what does it say? Gentleness. Gentleness. The term in the Greek here that is used for gentle can also be interpreted to the word meek. Now, let me tell you something, friends. Meekness is not weakness. The scripture does not command us to be spiritually weak. The Bible says over and over again that we are to be spiritually strong. We are to ask the Lord to strengthen us. We're to be very strong and courageous. 
and to not turn from God's word. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is rather a term that's often used when describing war horses, these big, strong horses that when the soldier puts a, a bit in their mouth and a saddle on their back will go headlong into war, facing whatever adversity is in the, ahead of them, doing as the master that is on his back directs him to do. That is meekness. And that's the way that we are to be. Just like Jesus, we're to be meek. That is, we're to have strength, but strength that is restrained. On the cross, Jesus could have called down all the angels. As a matter of fact, Jesus at any point during the unfair trial, during the beating, during his bruising, at any point in time in his life, he could have said to himself, you know what, they're not worth it. And, and there's nothing that we could have said in the least bit to disagree they're not worth it. I know Josh, many years from now, will claim me, will claim to love me, and will still lose his temper, and will still do these things that are not pleasing to me. And he could have sent down thousands of angels to destroy all those people, but that's not what Jesus did. On that cross, what was he? Was he weak? No. He was strength restrained. Jesus, on the cross, shows us how we, as God's people, are to be meek. Christ was gentle. We're to walk like him. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So this week, believers, if you want to walk in a manner that shows God that you understand the sacrifice that he made for you, if you want to walk in a manner that is worthy, be gentle. Don't be brash. Don't be immodest and uninhibited. Don't fall for the temptation of the political landscape or of the social media landscape where you just say what you want to and just throw it out there without care for how everyone else feels. We ought to be gentle people. It's the way Jesus lived his life. As a matter of fact, the only time that Jesus was firm was when he had to deal with other religious people. Jesus was gentle and meek and mild strength restrained. You don't have to repay people when for evil whenever they give you evil. You don't have to say something bad back to them. You don't have to take up for yourself. You don't have to hold a grudge. You don't have to do these things. Let that be God's court. Let God take care of that. Let God be the judge. Let him be him. We are to be gentle. It reminds me of that little boy who got on a bus in Chicago, and he got on the bus, and he was standing next to a, an older African-American man, and they were holding on to the handles as the bus was moving on, and the young man did not exactly like his position, and so the little boy pushed the older man, and the older man scooted over. And he kept pushing him, and the older man would scoot over, and he kept pushing him, and the older man would scoot over, and the older man didn't say anything, but this younger boy just kept bullying this older man. And as the bus came to a stop, and the young man about, was about to get off, the older man pulled out his wallet, pulled out a business card, and handed it to him, and on it, the older man's name was written Joe Lewis, heavyweight boxing champion from 1937 to 1949, arguably one of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time. Now that man, at any point in time, could have put that little boy in his place. 
And every one of us would have said he would have had every right to do so. As a matter of fact, in America, we're taught to stick up for ourselves and to kick in doors and to, and to make things ours. But here, the Bible commands us to be meek. That older man, that heavyweight champion, displayed meekness. Strength restrained. He also displayed patience with the young boy, which is the very next thing that Paul says. He says, I'm begging you. I urge you with everything that's in me. I'm begging you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And you can do that by being humble. And you can, you can do that by not only being humble, but you can do that by being gentle, which builds on top of your humility. And then finally, he says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. You know, I'm, I'm sad to say that throughout my time as being a Southern Baptist all my life, I'm guilty of saying this phrase and laughing about it all the time. You know, we'll say stuff like, don't ask God for patience or he'll give it to you. And then we'll laugh. <laughs> you know, I've really become convicted this past week over that. I've said it on multiple occasions and I've laughed. But in all reality, it seems like an awfully small price to pay to show God how thankful I am for the gospel. And in all reality, it seems like it's an awfully small price to pay in comparison with the cross. And you know, if you can't deal, if you and I can't deal with a little mild discomfort that comes from waiting an extra 30 minutes in traffic or waiting an extra 30 minutes in Walmart line behind someone who doesn't know between 20 items or less or what that means, it seems like if we can't put up with a little mild discomfort that comes from God teaching us through patience through that, then what are you doing following a God who commands us to come and die who said that all those who wish to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted no Christianity is not for the faint of heart brothers and sisters if patience is what it takes for me to show God how thankful I am for the gospel then let me wait in every line from here until I'm in my last line to go into the morgue let my life be an anthem for my gratitude for the gospel. We should not be such lighthearted, weak, ineffectual Christians. We should be the type of people who say the gospel has transformed us and we want to show God how thankful we are. God, teach us patience. Patience is not passiveness, you understand? Patience is not us just merely waiting around. Patience is, is, is understanding that God's timing is better than ours. Patience is the fruit of trusting in his promises. Do you really believe that God is going to take care of you? Be faithful and trust him. The scripture commands us to be patient. Be patient in tribulation, not complain in tribulation. I think that... Uh, that America is in a place where very soon we could be in a, a time of very real tribulation. And I fear that our testimony will be lost because all that God's people or people who claim to be God's people, all they'll be talking about is the rights that they lost. Rather, the scripture tells us to be patient in tribulation, to be patient with one another, to be patient for his 
coming. Now, I preach this to you, but I say I've failed in these last three in more ways than I could possibly care to count. I mean, this week I've waited in lines that I have thought, can this possibly go any slower? I don't think that this particular line, I don't think that people, when it, that light turns green, it's like, that doesn't mean just like casually go. And so I'm, I, I get frustrated. I, I was sitting with one of our secretaries this week, and our secretary said, Josh, can, can you just stay still? I said, you know I can't. I'm just, I'm, I'm constantly going. It's just the way I'm built. But you know what, Lord? Teach me patience. Teach us patience. When we fail that test, keep bringing them. Keep teaching us. Because I, we want to walk in a way that says thank you. We want to walk in a way that shows that we are worthy of the calling to which he has called us. And God is good to those who wait for him. Lamentations 3, 21 through 26, while Jeremiah is in captivity and not in his homeland, while he is in chains, he says in verse 21, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord, verse 25, is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. You know, we ought to be those people who wait upon the Lord. We ought to be those people who long for, Lord, mold me. If patience is what it takes, let it be. He says, I beg you, walk worthy, be humble, be gentle, be patient. And then he says in verse 2 at the end, bear with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. These all build on one another quite nicely, don't they? At first, we're to learn humility where we are. We're not to be overinflated. Once we understand who we are, then and, then, and only then can we be gentle and show Christ-like gentleness to those who are around us. And only after we have learned gentleness and walk in gentleness can we truly show patience. And the fruit of that patience is that we should bear with one another in love. The word to bear here means to endure something that is unpleasant. I think it's funny. He reserves this for when specifically talking about people and God's people. Now, I don't know, but if you're around people very much, you'll find out that at times we're rather unpleasant. We're rather, rather unagreeable, disagreeable. Uh, we have different habits, the way that we were... Uh, the way that we grew up in our homes, the, the habits that we have, they're all different from one another. The, all of these things are different. And at times, it can be hard to get along, can it? And unfortunately, in the church, we are more known about what we're divided over than what we are united about, something that we'll talk about in just a few moments. But the Bible here says that we as God's people, if we should show to him Thank you for the gospel. We want to walk in a manner that's worthy. We ought to bear with one another in love. In, in love, we ought to put up with one another, to ignore it when someone says something that offends us, to not hold a grudge, to return, some, to return uh, evil for niceness. That's the way that we ought to be as God's people. We ought to bear with one another. 
looking into, into the person, understanding that they're human, that they are fallen. Galatians 6 and verse 2 says that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're to bear with one another, and we're also to bear one another's burdens. That means when you're going through a difficult time, I'm going through a difficult time. I've heard that story of that young boy who, whose brother was disabled, and all throughout town, when, the, when his brother had to go somewhere, the little boy would pick up his brother and put him on his back and take him to wherever he wanted to go. At one point in time, the older man sitting out on one of the porches of one of the local businesses asked the young man, young boy, isn't your brother heavy? And he replied to him, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. It's not a problem for us to carry one another's burdens. Why? You're not heavy. You're my brother. You're my sister. I ought to want to, want to bear those burdens with you. The word bear here is also used in John chapter 19 and verse 17 when talking about the cross that Jesus was bearing, how he held on to it and clung to it as he climbed up Mount Calvary. So let me just give you this, this encouragement, this plea. If there's someone that you've been bearing with, you've not held on to them like Jesus held on to the cross. Keep going. Keep going. Keep bearing with them in love. Keep moving. There's no way that you can outdo what Jesus has already done. He's our example. Keep clinging to and keep loving them. Walk worthy. When you feel that you've done all that you can do, just keep going. Hold on to them like Jesus held on to the cross. Now let's move Finally, to verse 3, where Paul urges us on both knees, and he says, please, brothers and sisters, in light of this good gospel, walk in humility. Don't be proud. Don't be boastful. Don't be brash. Be gentle. As he begs, be patient. And then as he says, building on that, bear with one another. He says in verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The first words that he uses in verse 3 are for us to be eager. That is, that we are to hurry. We're to waste no time. We're to show great interest in the unity of the church. The idea here is that the Holy Spirit has provided unity in his church. Amen. That was the prayer of Jesus right before he went to the cross. Lord, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. He prays for unity. The Spirit has given us this unity. Now, let me, let me just kind of make a, a comment about that because there will be some who perhaps take the word unity and, and, and kind of warp it a little bit. I was in a prayer meeting with several pastors in our community. I'm so thankful for our West Memphis Marion Ministerial Fellowship and the pastors in this community are, are great. I'm so thankful for that fellowship. But we, we're in a much larger group talking about the need for our community to be unified. And we were talking about that if we just come together, we'll be unified. If we just come together, we'll be unified. And I said, I understand, and I'm with you, but there is no unity without truth. You see, I cannot have unity with a group of people who don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. There's no unity there. Because the gospel demands that I preach Jesus is the one and only way to heaven. There's not real unity when people don't believe that this is God's word 
and that it is truth, and that this is the only way that we can truly know the God of the universe is to come to him through his word here. What I'm not saying is that we should toss aside truth. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, I'm saying that God has given us a spirit of unity, and we ought to be eager. We ought to be desirous to do whatever we can to maintain that unity. Let whatever harm needs to be done to me, whatever wrong needs to be done to me, let it be done and let me say nothing so that we can preserve this bond of peace. A desire to be unified together, an eagerness. If you want to show the Lord, Lord, I'm thankful for the gospel. I, I, want, I want you to know that this wasn't a waste of grace. This is how you live. You start in the dirt. Then you learn gentleness. Then you learn patience. Then you bear with one another. Then you be eager to preserve the unity in the church. It's Paul's prayer. It's my prayer for us. One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Saving Private Ryan. Uh, this movie is set in World War II. It's a historical fiction, and it, it follows a company of soldiers who trek across and embattled Europe to find Private Ryan. Private Ryan is the only surviving brother of four still alive. The other three have passed away just shortly in wartime, and the powers that be in Washington do not want the widow at home to also have no sons, and so they commission a team to trek across Europe and find her only surviving child to bring him home. As they trek across Europe and go through uh, battleground after battleground, uh, by the time they get to the place where they finally find Private Ryan, almost everyone in this search and rescue operation dies. The leader, Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, in the closing chapter of the movie, gives his own life to save Private Ryan. And as, he, as they gaze at one another, Captain Miller, who is passing away, looks at Private Ryan and says, earn this. Earn this. All these men who have died to bring you home, all of the wives who are now widows so that we could bring you home, all of the mothers and fathers who will weep over those graves, but yours won't earn this. And that would have been a great ending to the movie. But as Private Ryan gazes at this man who gave his life for him, the background is transposed. And all of a sudden, this young Private Ryan is, is transformed into a much older man who is with his family at a beach, or at a cemetery, rather, in Normandy. And he is kneeling down at the grave of Captain Miller who gave his life for him. And he begins to sob and weep, and he calls his wife to him. And he says to her, Tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've led a good life. Of all the sacrifice that was made for him, he wanted to make sure that it was worth it. How much more so that a God infinite in holiness and righteousness 
when mankind had fallen into sin and rebelled against him, sent his only son, Jesus, to come to this earth and to live a perfect life and to never do anything wrong and then to go to the cross for you and for me and to take upon his broad and strong shoulders the weight of our sin and to die in our place, to take our shame, to be laid in a broad grave and then to rise again and to promise to us that if we will repent of our sins and call upon him, we can be saved, we can be co-heirs with him. We can have everything that he has. We can have eternity in heaven with him. We can have peace with God. How much more should we as believers want to live our lives in a way that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called? It should be our desire. And so that's my plea for you today. My plea is not for you to do this alone, but for us to do this together. Please. Please, the days are getting darker. The time is getting shorter. Walk worthy. Thank you for joining us for this episode of First Importance. We invite you to check out our other sermons on this podcast and to join us in person on Sunday at 8.30 or 11 a.m., as well as streaming live on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 11 a.m. We hope to see you soon at First Baptist West Memphis, where we love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.